Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour with me, David Kermode from Food FM, episode 93. And this week, as this podcast approaches its 100th episode, uh, we're celebrating seniors with a special edition dedicated to Old Vines, reporting on the inaugural Old Vines conference field trip to Italy. We'll hear from Sarah Abbott, MW. Plus, later on, some medal-winning Old Vine wines from the IWSC. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Old vines can produce wines that are truly transcendent, often from ancient varieties that have come close to extinction, frequently from forgotten vineyards, the trunks of the vines, more like trees. Uh, There's also evidence that these veteran vines are fit for the times, uh, proving their worth by adapting far better to climate change. Yet old vines are still being grubbed up the world over, often simply because their yields are too low. Well, two years ago, the Old Vine Conference was established by a group of wine lovers who wanted to galvanise a global movement to protect old vines, celebrate the efforts already underway around the globe uh, and encourage best practice uh, between those efforts uh, to try to create a meaningful category for old vine wines around the world. Uh, There's been some significant success already. Uh, Back in November, the Old Vine Conference uh, held its first field trip, and I was lucky enough to be invited. So today for this special edition of The Drinking Hour, I shall report back uh, talking to co-founder of the Old Vine Conference, Sarah Abbott, MW, who's uh, been a guest here before, and also our hosts on the trip, Domenico Veronese, owner of uh, Villa Bogdano 1880 and a champion for old vines, and also uh, another champion, uh, Claudio Zani and son Niccolo, um, who uh, might well own the oldest vineyard in Italy. Uh, first, though, let's go to uh, Sarah. Um, welcome back to The Drinking Hour, uh, Sarah. Hi, David. Great to be here. Lovely to have you. Uh, we've spoken old vines before, quite some time ago, in an early edition of The Drinking Hour. Uh, but for those who are new to the cause, um, just explain why... 
anyone should give us stuff about old vines. They are part of a kind of underestimated heritage of wine, cultural heritage and agricultural heritage. And they, first of all, make really delicious and typically really unique wine. But also they're kind of like arcs of genetic diversity. And there are quite a lot of organizations all across the world in different regions set up to preserve their local viticultural heritage. And the reason why this is significant is because it's about preserving the diversity and biodiversity and cultural diversity of wine at a time of really growing um, sort of um, homogenization and standardization. So something like 80% of the world's vineyards are accounted for by about 20 different grape varieties. So we don't want to lose this. It's like every other area of great food and wine and deliciousness. Not only does it bring you joy, but also diversity is resilience. And wine needs diversity, just like every other type of agricultural uh, area at the moment. And uh, an old vine doesn't have to be an almost extinct variety, does it? Because, for example, um, Chenin Blanc um, is still uh, fairly commonplace as a grape variety. And yet um, there is um, a real, that word of transcendence um, in old vine Chenin Blanc, isn't there? Yes, there are definitely some varieties which are kind of transformed by age and they come into their own with age. Uh, Chenin Blanc is one of them, especially in South Africa. And the South Africans were really pioneers of celebrating this, the the value of old vine heritage. Uh, Rosa Kruger and Andre Margenthal founded the old vine project there. But Chenin Blanc is one of these, they kind of come good, you know, when they're, when they're young vines, they're a bit unruly, you know, they tend to crop um, yield very high. Um, and they are absolutely, there are certain varieties which reward you with age. Grenache is another one, Chenin Grenache, um, quite a lot actually of the sort of the Mediterranean varieties like Sanso, um, Sangiovese in Italy. So yeah, you can kind of think about, I always think of vine varieties as kind of like characters in a play, you know, and if you think some of them are really kind of like um, a bit delinquent (laughs) when they're young and then they come good with maturity. But yeah, it doesn't, um, that's true. It's, it's not just about rarity. Um, it's, it's a nexus of factors. So why are these old vines being grubbed up around the world? Because it's estimated something like 90% of the old vines that we could have had have, have been lost, I think. Um, is it just about yields? No, it's not only about yields. If we can zoom out a bit, I think... The reason that the diversity of grape varieties has declined, really, you can first of all, you can go back to the 1800s when you had phylloxera, the devastating uh, pest that basically led to the uh, destruction of a lot of European vineyards. But then after the Second World War, um, the whole trend for farming is when literally societies were afraid that they're, you know, they would not be able to feed themselves. There was this what they what was thought of was of, uh, as a kind of an improvement of agriculture where a lot of the more like cottage agricultural 
um, practices, very localized, were apparently well, what they what they thought they were doing was improving it, and this led to a kind of a standardization and um, and the sourcing of new planting vines from nurseries. Um, rather than taking um, massal cuttings from your existing vineyards and so on, I mean, wine as um, as an offer has become truly global now. You have new markets, new consumers for wine that have emerged, um, and um, and that's fantastic. But also, you have declining consumption in some of the traditional markets. And when I say international varieties. I'm not anti them, but varieties such as Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, even Merlot, these have become a, a sort of a lingua franca of the wine world. So they're recognized and desired all over the world, very much driven by this concept of noble varieties. I think noble and ennoble varieties are, is a, a kind of a crazy way to think about wine. But anyway, so there's this trend for certain great varieties to become almost like a, a an international brand so that there's this pressure to actually plant more of those um, and to to dig up lots of these very specialized very um, highly localized varieties you saw this a lot in Italy but actually Italy is really coming back from that um, and Italy is actually becoming a real center for the appreciation and um, sort of restoration of these really, really local, um, highly sort of niche, completely delicious varieties, which give the most incredibly distinctive and, and delicious wines. Tell us a bit more about this adaptation to climate change that is seen in older vines, because as I mentioned in the introduction, this makes um, these older vines um, lower yielding though they may be, uh, potentially a really uh, thoroughly modern sort of addition to the armoury that we need um, to adapt to global warming, uh, doesn't it? It does. Anyone who's really interested in geeking out on this, I'd recommend you go to our website, actually, www.oldvines.org. And we link to various sources and publications. But the main one is um, a, a doctoral uh, thesis written by uh, Dr. Dylan Grigg, who is a, a fantastic viticulturalist based in Australia. Um, and he carried out this uh, award-winning research where he compared um, old vine Grenache in Australia, which was he was able to do it because there were young vines in almost identical conditions very nearby. And he carried out an analysis into what was happening in these different vines during the growing season. And what he found was that not only did the older vines basically metabolize in drought conditions more effectively and just kind of handled the drought in a way that didn't compromise their health, their water status, um, and um, and basically um, their yeah their health and their water status and their kind of healthy survival, but also um, there is evidence that over time you can almost I mean plant scientists will not like me saying this but it's like they learn a lesson. Essentially, it's called epigenetic adaptation. And, and the, the plants actually reconfigure 
their genetic um, code to cope with the fact and to kind of, they learn from experience on, oh, here's this particular site, or we always go through a bit of a drought at this time. And, and then what happens over time is they basically become almost really wise to their location. And the thing about um, grape wine is grape wine comes from a knife edge of a plant that is just just struggling slightly to survive. Just the plant needs to be a little bit anxious to produce grapefruit because grapes are like the babies of the vine. And um, in, if, if you give a vine everything it needs with no stress, it'll just keep climbing. I mean, these are climbers, they're lianas. If the vine thinks, oh, I'm a bit worried about what's going to happen to me, I need to get my genetic code out there. I need to reproduce. That's when they put their efforts into fruit. So all great minds around the world are basically all predicated on this knife edge of benign stress for vines. But what they find is that also vines that have been established in a particular location for, um, uh, for many years, they adapt to survive this and to reproduce in this location. But guess what? When you take cuttings from those vines... The, those adaptations are actually passed on to the offspring. So um, all the kind of, if you like, the wisdom that the vine has developed can be passed on to its offspring. And in Australia, this has led to a big focus on what they call heritage cuttings. So they'll take cuttings from old vines that um, are actually you know, really prized for making great quality fruit, for being really adapted, almost effortlessly healthy in their location. And they will replant new vineyards from those cuttings because those cuttings will have the genetic adaptation of the parents. And it means that they know that those cuttings will actually also thrive in that given location so this is the other thing about these old vines and um, and this genetic diversity is that if you just get rid of them and you plant standardized clones from a nursery, there's all this adaptation and, if you like, wisdom and understanding of the environment that is lost. And I'm, I'm highly anthropomorphizing here because I'm, I'm not a, a botanist, but you know, essentially, this is what's going on. And any botanists out there will just have to forgive me. <laughs> oh, well, uh, we certainly forgive you because you have this amazing ability to translate um, really uh, uh, kind of geeky stuff into uh, relatable uh, language uh, for people like me, chiefly, to to be able to understand it. And I think we understand the concept of, of babies and, and survival. Um, and, and I think that's just really um, fascinating as well. Um, you mentioned there um, the efforts underway in Australia. Um, you've talked about South Africa's pioneering uh, old vine project already. And we featured that here on the Drinking Hour before. And of course, there's great work underway. I'm drinking my coffee this morning from an old vine project um, mug from uh, Lodi in California. Um, uh, so that before the Old Vine Conference was established a couple of years ago, there were um, efforts underway, uh, admirable efforts around the world, weren't there? Yes. So th- there are lots of regional organisations, um, you say grassroots, um, very much focused on particular regions and their, and their efforts to honour um, and protect this 
this area of really wine heritage. Um, Janice Robinson, MW, has been also promoting and talking about the value of old vineyards and heritage viticulture for many years. So Australia, um, and then, um, well, Australia was the Barossa Valley, the Barossa Old Vine Charter. Lodi, as you mentioned, also uh, South Africa. South Africa, I'd say, has been the most advanced in bringing everything together and integrating their efforts in the vineyards into marketing, communications, and actually products, you know, wine wine on the shelves. Also, Chile, there's a fantastic organization called Vino in Chile, which is about um, old vine Carignan in, in Maule. And then you've got lots of individuals, um, individual producers who champion their old vines. And the stories behind these vineyards are really inspiring. And I think it's just worth highlighting why what what is significant when you say an old vineyard because it's it's not just oh it's old it's the whole concept and intent around planting vines and making wine from it and um in in italy in particular i see this contrast very strongly um so for example we've just you and i we were recently in um friuli but in Italy, these old vineyards were planted at a time when, because of frugality, because of the need to survive on in while working the land, the thinking behind them was long term. So the the site selection for where am I going to plant this vineyard, it had to be selected wisely with um a complete reliance on what was there in the land. So it meant that it may well be in a in a slightly kind of inconvenient location, but you would choose it because the water supply was appropriate, because um, the um, exposure to the sunlight and um, the kind of essentially the conditions, the natural conditions would be appropriate and, and ideal for planting a vine um, and for that vine to be healthy. And the idea was that really you would be planting as a long-term prospect and all of your cultivation, all of the way of farming would be done to ensure an, a naturally healthy long life for these vineyards. And that leads to all kinds of decisions and practices in viticulture, which are quite different to the more modern approach to planting vines where the vine is really seen as a consumable um, and where the site selection will tolerate less than ideal conditions because there's then a, uh, a sort of an understanding that well we can irrigate if we need to we can mechanize and we know that the vine is going to be a bit exhausted and um, all used up by the age of 20 but we'll just replant so it's it's I know it's a slightly kind of geeky viticultural thing, but I think the power behind talking about old vines and heritage vineyards is that it does crack open this difference in approach to farming. And I think there are parallels in lots of other areas of food and drink production as well. 
Yeah, there really are. I think of bread and, you know, the rediscovery yeah. of sourdough starters and what delicious bread that makes. And, and of course, there's cheese and, 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 and produce that's uh, organically grown and, and, and coming from yeah, heritage uh, grains, exactly. breeds yeah, no, of animals. And, and, and yeah. the thing that unites these things generally is um, they're normally pricier and, and they're just taste nicer. They're, they're, they, they have more flavour. Um, it's deliciousness, basically. So we're going to come to how we might taste an old vine in a wine at the end when we reflect on the, um, on the masterclass that uh, you held for us on the field trip. But let's talk about how we might um, in the future uh, be able to prioritise old vines and, and look to buy a specific old vine wine because in South Africa um, they have this uh, seal um, that they've pioneered um, that's an old vine certificate effectively on a wine. Um, Is that something that you would like to see right around the world to to unite these um, old vines from different regions? Yes, is the short answer. However, (laughs) I I would take what is possible over what is perfect if you can make what's possible happen. So I think just to recap on, just to pick up on what you said about uh, South Africa. So South Africa, I think, has the uh, is really the benchmark for what can be done by paying attention to heritage vineyards and the power of paying that attention to the profile, prestige and, and economic prosperity of grape growers and winemakers and that whole sector. So what the South Africans did, first of all, they um, they they didn't try and impose a kind of um, a, a regulatory top-down approach on their producers. They started, it started with Rosa Kruger, who's a viticulturalist um, and viticultural advisor in South Africa, very highly respected and liked. And she really led this mission to say, look, here we are in South Africa. And South Africa is, you know, a country with a such a rich, rich natural resources, but of course a, a really complex and in some parts tragic history. And I think that what Rosa Kruger did that was really powerful is that she said, look, these old vineyards kind of tell the story of the land and also the story of our past. And she said they are really worth honouring. Um, and some of these vineyards had almost, they'd survived in a way because of benign neglect. But um, she started going around the country and just logging them. And um, and so these lots of these are dry farmed bush vineyards um, in really quite rugged um, and remote um, areas. And she started logging them and she had a, a campaign called We Are Old. <laughs> and she then, and, and she got some great support with this. And then she paired up with um, Andre Morgenthal, who's um, a brilliant wine marketer and communicator. And they co-founded, they basically established this kind of thing called the Old Vine Project. And they are an organization with their own charter. They control their membership. Members sign up. They become a member of this the organization and they abide by its charter and they are then able to use that organization's uh, trademarked um, seal 
They can be a certified heritage vineyard um, and they um, produce wine, which has the certified heritage vineyard seal on it. But they're an organization that, if you like, their own, they're like um, a member, a member organization. So they have control over their branding and their seal. Um, and that's a great way to move forward because it means you build trust with a very tight knit community of peers. But what they did, I think, that was really impactful is they realized that the vineyards are one thing, but where they live is in people's glasses. You know, it's when people are sipping these wines and drinking these, well, or glugging the wines, downing the wines, you don't have to sip. Um, So they did a lot of work on bringing together wine producers and grape growers and ensuring that these certified heritage vineyards were actually linked to product, to wine bottles in the market. Um, and that it it's actually um, a, a, a certified heritage vineyard wine then started being more valued in the market. Um, growers started receiving higher prices for these grapes because they created this kind of value. They Well, they, they just, they allowed the value that was always there to be released and to be recognized. And I think they really deserve so much credit for that. And really, they are the model for how it should happen. And I think the best way for us to move forward is essentially to have a nexus of regional organizations like that, who then come together under quite a kind of a loose knit net (laughs) for collaborating, because different regions, parts of the world have different terroir, climatic conditions, vine history, um, and they have to do what is right for their community. It is just worth saying, actually, David, that the um, within the EU, in the wine working group, um, there is a project at the moment that is uh, analysing and quantifying the value of old vines to the European wine sector, and they are moving towards bringing this value um, and recognizing this value of old vines into EU legislation. And I think that can be very powerful for Europe because one of the inadvertent consequences of lots of the agricultural development policies is that old vines that do have this latent value have been dug up because if you are a producer in Alentejo, for example, and you apply for funding to renovate some vineyards, um, maybe do up your winery, you know, put in some visitor um, facilities, whatever. Previously, or in fact, I think even now, the requirement is that you have to start all over again. You have to dig everything up and replace it. Crazy. So it's, um, yeah, it's not a, it's, you know, it's, it's not malign. It's just one of these consequences when policy is developed and maybe the detailed awareness of the value of these cultural products. I mean, cultural value is becoming enormously important in concepts like regenerative capitalism and all this kind of thing. So I think there is a shift. And I think it's important just to say this isn't a sentimental hanging on to, oh, let's send granny out with a hoe. You know, it's not that. It's about recognizing that for in agricultural and agricultural communities, the way forward is developing these highly typical, beautiful, 
intersectional products <laughs> that are so full of taste, flavor, history, cultural significance that it doesn't matter that they're quite expensive to produce and that there's only you know small quantities of them made. They become part of the cultural offer and it supports rural communities. It brings prosperity. You know, it it enables people to live outside of cities and still have a nice life, you know, and do something meaningful and create something beautiful. So there's um there's all sorts of, I mean, I've gone down a rabbit hole with this, but there's all sorts of things like United Nations, you know, Food and Farming has the GS um, Award, Globally Important Agricultural Heritage Systems, which covers wine and, and grapes and saffron and, you know, wasabi and everything. But there's there's a big shift on how we think about agriculture, diversity and value and almost like an aesthetics of agricultural product. And so wine and old vines and heritage vineyards are just a tiny part of that. Well, if you're down a rabbit hole, I'll, I'll chase you further down there because okay. uh, it's it's good that you brought up sentimentality because I'm playing devil's advocate. Just because a person, for example, is older doesn't make them nicer or better. And if I have a car and it's older, it's it's probably less reliable um, than a new car. So um, old in itself doesn't mean better, does it? No, I mean... But just to pick up on the analogies you've already made, when you do have a beautiful vintage car, how incredible and astounding is this? I went to Hampton Court Palace, actually, to the um, Concours d'Elegance in the summer where they have these vintage cars. And the fact that these old cars have survived and have been nurtured and have gone through all these different transfers of ownership and just the like the crazy beauty of them um is a really inspiring thing that inspires collectors also to pay a lot of money for them and just on old people i mean okay i know in i mean in in the west we don't necessarily i think um have i think the correct reverence and appreciation of age i would say this i'm getting on a bit but when we have all known people of seniority and age in our life who've just been the most incredible souls. So, okay, you still not not every um not every example of something that is old is beautiful, but when it is beautiful and it has acquired all of this meaning and experience through age, it's supremely beautiful. But no, it's right. I mean, an old vine wine and an old vineyard, they must be good. You know, um, they must have merit. So just because it's old doesn't mean that it's great. But what you do find in wine and old vineyards is what I call a muse effect. That if you, oh, so for example, if you look at what um, Fernando Mora, who's a, a master of wine, he's based in Spain, he has. Um, uh, an old vine project um, um, called um, the um, the Lost Garden, um, and he's gone out basically buying up these old vineyards, um, restoring them, and making the most sensational wines um, uh, from northern Spain from these vineyards. And you find this all around the world. There's something around 
the story and the offer of an old vine um, and of old vineyards that when they are good, they really attract the most visionary um, and inspiring um, winemakers who uh, kind of interact with them. And you have to bear this in mind because it's not just about the vineyard. You know, wine is created by someone. It's farmed by someone. It has to be brought to life. It's it's an interaction. So in, in that way, it's quite different to something like music or art. But this is when you start to take wine into almost this cultural aesthetic, you know, um, plane. I'm thinking also there's the um, Jardin Oculto in um, Bolivia, where they basically restored these 100-plus-year-old arboreal vines. And the wines are absolutely, um, you know, distinctive. Um, I haven't tried them, but um, Jancis um, Robinson has, and her her reviews were absolutely raving. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's the value of this intersection and the kind of the almost improbable survival of of these um, wines that do make them really great. But of course, it's it's not a shoe in. You can't just stick um, a number on something and say I'm old, therefore I deserve your admiration. Everything else has to come into play. And we're going to hear how it does come into play with our field trip. We're going to uh, speak to Domenico Veronese, the owner of uh, Villa Bogdano 1880, a great supporter of the uh, uh, Old Vine Conference. And uh, also, we're going to feature um, our first stop on the trip. Quite possibly, it's difficult to be absolutely certain, but quite possibly the oldest vines in Italy. We're here in the Colli Orientali del Friuli in Italy's northeast corner on, on flat lands, uh, part of an enormous basin running from the Adriatic Sea uh, into the foothills of the, uh, the Dolomites. Um, before me, uh, uh, an ancient vineyard, some of the vines well over 100 years old, um, some of the oldest in Italy, uh, quite possibly. Uh, and then in the distance, um, hills, then uh, mountains, uh, kind of framing the view of the uh, ancient vineyard. Uh, these vines have been lovingly nurtured and preserved by the uh, Zani family. Uh, among those vines, uh, a unique village wine, a Rifosco di Feidis, uh, really a treasure, tiny in terms of uh, its production. And uh, we've joined, I'm delighted to say, by um, Nicolo Zani. And his father, uh, Claudio, is also here. But uh, Nicolo is uh, doing the English for us. So thank you very much uh, and uh, welcome. Uh, thank you for having us along. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Rifosco de Fadis. So hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Nicolo Zani and I'm here with uh, my father, Claudio Zani. Um, so today we are talking about uh, Rifosco de Fadis. It's a grape variety from uh, Friuli. Uh, it's a red uh, var- grape variety. It's uh, really uh, rare in uh, Friuli because it's uh, cultivated quite only in uh, Faedis, our small village. Refosco di Faedis is uh, a wine uh, with uh, a high acidity and also uh, really high uh, tannins. Our uh, Refosco di Faedis comes from uh, and uh, a vineyard that was planted in 1895. So uh, today it's uh, 127 years old. 
So we collect uh, the grapes uh, of Refosco di Faedis from uh, this vineyard to produce uh, our Refosco di Faedis. We also have an association uh, in Faedis of uh, Morbiticultures uh, that produce uh, and wants to um, valorize um, Refosco di Faedis. We bought every single winery of uh, the association bottle his uh, wine with the same label. Every winery produ produces his own wine, so with his own characteristics. But uh, three times a year we meet together and have a blind tasting to decide which wines can go uh, inside that bottle with that label. This is because we want to guarantee that uh, um, when you drink uh, Refosco di Fedis with uh, the label of the association, we are drinking uh, wine with the uh, characteristics of uh, Refosco. It's a great system and a very unusual system to have an association uh, uniting around a label like that, with then the, the producer name being sort of built within a standardised label, white labels for the younger wines and, and black for the, the older wines. And we were uh, fortunate to, to taste those uh, earlier. Um, beyond Refosco, you have some other old vines within this vineyard, don't you? Yeah, this vineyard is uh, uh, half of an hectare. Uh, inside of uh, uh, this vineyard we have 29 varieties. All these varieties are uh, old and um, uh, autochthonous uh, varieties from uh, Friuli. We are trying to create a genetic bank of uh, autochthonous varieties. So uh, our project is to con continue to plant uh, varieties from Friuli. Why is it so important to you to have these old vines? Because many other people have ripped up their old vines and planted newer vines. They produce more grapes. Why is it important for you to have old vines? We think that uh, um, it would be really a bad thing to uh, remove this historical vineyard. It's a um, cultural um, museum, uh, uh, open-air muse museum of uh, viticulture of uh, 127 years ago. So we are trying uh, to preserve uh, uh, this uh, beautiful uh, thing. Yeah, and doing a very good job by the looks of the vines. I mean, they're, they're now going into their winter dormancy because, of course, they've already uh, done their work for the year, but they, they look very, very healthy. How do you care for them? Uh, every work in the vineyard is done manually. This is or in order to don't stress uh, the vines. Uh, so um, the grass is uh, uh, chopped without uh, going inside the vineyard with EV machines. Uh, yes, so to avoid compacting, compacting the, soil. the soil. Yes, yeah. Every um, work uh, on the vine is done manually. It's a lot of work then compared to using modern machinery. Yeah, it's a lot of work, but. Uh, we think that it's worth uh, the final result. Yeah, well, based on what I tasted it, it definitely is. Um, tell us um, how you believe there is a difference in the taste of a wine from an old vine. So an old vine has uh, much more uh, nutrients and uh, uh, substances uh, inside his um, corpse. Inside the plant. Uh, inside yes. the plant. And... Uh, this results in a more uh, 
complexity and more and uh, in, in a more equilibrated wine mm -hmm. uh, when you taste it in the glass. Yes, and there's a uh, I think as a sense of concentration in the in the fruit, isn't there? Yeah, um, because uh, the vine can uh, give more uh, elements to the grapes. Uh, and then the wine that uh, will be produced from these grapes uh, will be more rich in, uh, in, in concentration, in, in concentration in, in of aromas and also color matter. Yeah, and, and I tell you, the tannins were beautiful as well. So fine and elegant and uh, the whole uh, wines, both the younger wine and the um, aged wine, uh, had a beautiful kind of perfumed character, which is um, so delicious. So uh, I hope you're getting um, the, the support for those wines that um, that they must attract a lot of attention from from wine lovers. So um, I, I applaud what you're you're doing uh, here, and and thank you uh, to Claudio and to to, to you, Nicolo, for uh, joining us uh, here to talk about it. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure. <laughs> well, our other visit uh, on the field trip was to the wonderful uh, Villa Bogdano in uh, Lisson di Portoguaro, about an hour from Venice, uh, between the Adriatic and the Alps. Uh, Domenico Veronese is the owner of uh, Villa Bogdano 1880. Uh, an estate steeped in tradition, as the name suggests. 18 hectares of the 110-hectare estate are defined as historic, among them 117 vines of uh, Tokai Friolano uh, that uh, date back to the end of uh, the uh, 19th century, I think. Um, uh, Domenico uh, joins us now. Uh, Domenico, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Hi, David. Good afternoon, and thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure. Um, tell us then about uh, Villa Bogdano. Well, as you as you mentioned, we are located in in Lison, this small town uh, in between uh, two regions, Veneto and Friuli, in the northeast of uh, of Italy. Uh, interestingly, it's the only uh, cross regional DOCG appellation of uh, of of Italy. Uh, and Villa Bogdano, as you, you, you mentioned, uh, is, is about 180 hectares. Uh, and uh, uh, inside we have uh, um, an old uh, planitial forest uh, and 18 hectares uh, in a single body uh, of uh, uh, old, uh, uh, old vineyards. They are mainly of uh, two grape varieties, uh, uh, Merlot and uh, most importantly, Tokai uh, Frulano, which account for about 80 percent of the uh, of the extension. So tell me about Tokai Friolano, because I must confess that before I came to visit you, I hadn't actually heard of it. And obviously, I've heard of Tokai, um, but uh, not Tokai Friolano. Well, it's, it's a very interesting story. Uh, this grape variety, which uh, recent DNA testing has traced back to the Sauvignon Vert or the, the French Sauvignon As, uh, arrived in, in Italy, in the northeast of Italy, uh, in the second half of the 19th century. And uh, it, uh, it had been called for, for many decades uh, uh, Tokai, uh, despite uh, uh, carrying no relationship whatsoever to the Hungarian or the, or the French uh, Tokai. Uh, and this led to a, to a confrontation uh, where in the, in the 80s, basically Italy lost the right to use this appellation and uh, then uh, different areas uh, decided to rename it. And Tokai Frulano, we can still 
call the grape a variety, but we have to call uh, the uh, the wine produced with, from these vines in different names. The most uh, known are the Friulano in Friuli and the Lison from, from our appellation. And they're beautiful wines. Uh, one of those you mentioned, the Lison, was... Uh... Uh, one of my top wines of uh, of 2022. What are the oldest vines then that you, you have and how do you know how old they are? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, we have some historic documentation that uh, in in our estate, the Tokai Frulano arrived uh, approximately in 1880. And uh, uh, within the following two decades, uh, uh, most of the vines were wiped out by the uh, arrival of the phylloxera and they were replanted at the turn of the century and in the following 25 years uh, grafted uh, uh, so uh, the, the the oldest vineyard we have uh, is uh, is dating back to 1880 but most of the uh, of the vines uh, are approximately dated between 1900 and 1925 approximately it's very difficult to date because unlike other uh, other plant species, you cannot just uh, uh, chop and count the rings. It doesn't work for uh, for vines. So you have to look back at documentation, make estimates, look at the type of grafting. So it's a very complicated and, and interesting issue. Yeah. And you do a lot of work and, and, and spend a lot of money on protecting and preserving these veteran vines. And we were introduced um, to your estate manager uh, when we visited. Uh, just tell us about uh, what you've done to uh, ensure that these vines continue to thrive? Well, what we are doing is trying to preserve the genetic pool, and the only way you can do it is simply by uh, using only the same genetic material of the old vineyard. So we take uh, gems and shoots from and from the uh, from the old vines, uh, and uh, for the for the new uh, for for the new uh, vineyard. So it's obviously a very very complicated and uh, uh, slow uh, exercise. So you 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 can only produce uh, an X amount of, of of vines per per year. But I think it's it's the only way you can preserve their genetic pool because uh, we we were saying earlier uh, we are descending from the French Sauvignonas, but we actually have. Uh, uh, over uh, almost two centuries, developed this yellow biotype, uh, which is very unique to our area, and it carries pretty much no similarity to a uh, Sauvignonas. If you do like a tasting, it will be a completely different wine, and even the looks of the bunch of grapes is is completely different. You are a, a big supporter of the um, Old Vine uh, Conference. Um, what? sort of sparked your interest in old vines then was it owning the estates or did you already have an interest uh, in old vines to be honest i, I really didn't know m- much about uh, old vines and wines from old vines uh, up until uh, 2016 when uh, uh, when we uh, purchased the, the estate as a consumer I, I used to drink some cabernet franc from loire made from uh, like centenary vines, which I found phenomenal. And, and I was always a bit surprised of how cheap you could come across some of these wines despite of their, their quality. But when, uh, uh, when I actually realized uh, how many old vineyards the, uh, this estate had, and uh, uh, most importantly, looking at how people considered old vines a liability, I, I thought immediately uh, this this is completely wrong. This is uh, for, for a variety of reasons about quality of wine that can be produced, about biodiversity, about sustainability. Uh, there's lots of reasons why uh, 
I think all vines are uh, are gathering importance now, and uh, it will be a theme for the future. That's why I was a very very enthusiastic supporter even of the old vine conference from the from the beginning because I I strongly believe in what they are doing. Well, it's a, a, a brilliant uh, success story uh, already, I think, and uh, congratulations on your uh, own efforts and. Uh, and most of all, um, thank you for your uh, generosity um, and also to uh, uh, Claudio and uh, uh, to Nicolo uh, for uh, their hospitality too. And uh, good luck uh, with continuing to make uh, wonderful wines from Old Vines. Thank you so much. My pleasure for being here. Thank you, David. And thank you, everyone. Domenico, uh, thank you very much for uh, your generous hospitality and uh, for hosting the inaugural Old Vine Conference field trip. Back to Sarah Abbott, MW, uh, co-founder of the Old Vine Conference, uh, who we were talking to a short time ago. So this um, inaugural uh, field trip, a big deal, uh, given that you've only been going with the conference less than two years, um, a success? Yes, I hadn't realised how powerful it would be to go to to go to I feel like on location and my in my day job I ran a lot of press trips and familiarization visits to wine regions this was different because it was much more geeky and really focused on viticulture so normally when you run a press trip you know <laughs> you see many you 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 pack in a lot but there's a certain amount of you know commercial smoothing that goes on which is fine i'm not against commercial smoothing but i i found that the time that we spent in the vineyard and especially the focus on on viticulture as culture and science and a, a kind of um, vocation as well as a, a necessity for earning a living all of that was really powerful and the time that we were able to spend with professors uh, Fregoni and Petrucci was really um, transformative, and I learned I learned so much on that trip. And I had wondered whether we'd made it a bit too geeky, but actually, I think this is when I realised that in wine we can sometimes be a bit nervous about talking about viticulture and how the wine is grown. And this can make different approaches to viticulture seem opaque in wine, but actually, it's it's kind of um, it's a really important part of how we talk about wine. Like, and and it made me realise that there's a lot of power and also need for that. I think that accountability about the accountability and transparency is coming for wine. I think we're kind of being let off the hook compared to a lot of other foodstuffs. Um, but ingredient labeling is coming. Um, and also I think that in, we're already in a place where something, a product cannot be considered luxurious or something to be aspired to if it's doing damage to the world or to societies. And it's kind of beyond fair trade into a sort of, um, ethical luxury. And so, it really got me thinking that um, trip, but also I I, I, I learned so much, and um, we actually are we we've we've decided that we're going to do we're going to plan for more of these field trips than we had initially thought because 
I mean, there are a lot, there are a lot to put on, um, but they are some of the most powerful things we can do. Just take people there, show them the vineyards, explain why they're different, talk about the intent, the way in which this kind of frugality interacts with creativity and a certain kind of gritty um, uh, desire just to pick good grapes and and make wine that people want to buy it's it kind of creates something very inadvertently beautiful Mm, yes that determination these are not you know uh, wealthy people um they're um you know uh, farmers and this is just a a gritty determination to preserve something that they know is um incredibly special and uh, and and to make the 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 best wines uh, from that as well it it was wonderful to to see the trunks of these old vines for real rather than just look at pictures but it was most of all for me it was the uh, the passion that was um conveyed from those people um who 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 nurture these old vines it was it was wonderful you mentioned there was some technical talk uh, i'm very much not a scientist but um, i i managed to keep up so uh, it was uh, still the, the right side of accessible but there was a lot of talk about grafting the process of of using one rootstock and and adding a a different vine which all of came about because of phylloxera, um, I'm, I'm assuming. Why was there so much talk about grafting? So in the history and the story of wine, we've had a couple of major viticultural shifts, but really the biggest of all was this um, the epidemic, the phylloxera the kind of epidemic of um, the late 1800s. And it's easy for us to miss what... Um, what a kind of an apocalyptic event this was for wine. We nearly lost the concept and the culture of wine until it was realised that essentially we could stop all the vineyards dying by bringing over American... So phylloxera basically comes from America. Um, And so American, the American vitis um, species has developed a resistance to phylloxera. So phylloxera can't get into the roots of American vines, not like it can the vinifera uh, vines. So basically, for absolutely, you know, well, really ever since the um, late 1800s, the policy for dealing with phylloxera, which is now endemic in so many different wine uh, countries of the world, um, is that you would graft your vinifera um, uh, scion onto an American rootstock. And Professor's Fragoni, Professor Fragoni's presentation was essentially saying, we've, we've all just accepted that this is the only way forward and this is the only solution. But just be aware that there are, there is a kind of a price to be paid when you graft a vine into how it reacts with the environment how how long it can survive and essentially ultimately a kind of um uh, possibly a quality of wine so lots of the world's oldest surviving vineyards or quite a lot of them are actually ungrafted um and there is an organization called Front de Pied which is um a non-profit like our own um which is set up to say these vineyards are examples of a type of viticulture which was almost lost. Um, And there is a resurgent interest 
in the difference between grafted and ungrafted vines. And there's, uh, I think, some credible evidence to show that there is a difference and that although, I mean, phylloxera is no joke, okay, so in lots of countries, you actually are, are not legally allowed to plant new vineyards that are not on rootstock. But there's this kind of um, pushing the boundaries of viticultural um, convention or orthodoxy and saying, actually, we still need to explore the possibilities for ungrafted vines of the future because they, you know, we think they do offer this additional potential dimension of quality for wine. I think it's a really exciting time for viticulture in wine because a lot of orthodoxies are being questioned, a lot of accepted thinking. Well, the kind of the questions and demand for accountability in the wine, in the way that wine is made, for example, which has been driven a lot, I think, by natural wine. And I think the natural wine movement has been fantastic for wine. But then also, how is the wine being grown? So yeah, I mean, and it's another rabbit hole. It's, it's a nexus of thinking about how wine is grown and ungrafted is is an element of that. I yeah. mean, there are some really great grafted vineyards. And actually, when we went to Fadis in Friuli, which I know you're going to come on to in a bit, you know, their their rootstock was an incredibly old rootstock, which I think was unique and which um, they'd they'd managed to sort of um, had managed to be um, found and and uh, planted there. And and it was you know as old as the vines and. And it's a really geeky, quirky rootstock. I can't remember the name of it, but I've got it in my notes somewhere. We also enjoyed a tasting masterclass, which uh, you uh, led us uh, through. And um, I think it's fair to say it was a very great success. Um, It was very much enjoyed. It overran terribly, which is a very good sign, of course, that we were all having a very good time. (laughs) It was very Italian, all the timings. Yeah, they really were. <laughs> I but, think we had a. I think lunch was three hours, and that put us back. That, indeed, yeah. Well, lunch tends to be three hours in Italy, doesn't it? Yum. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> quite right. Old wine wines from Villa Bogdano, uh, also from um, uh, Claudio Zani, um, and also elsewhere, including a stunning Terraldego from the uh, Dolomites, which I think I can still taste. Um, yes. Um, do you think that the yeah. old vine Poor quality Adora. was evident? Uh, in the glass do you think um it's very difficult to convey tasting uh when we're just talking about it but um, just explain um take us into the room how those um old vines manifest themselves in the wines that we tasted yeah it's um a really good question and so we had um we had six wines didn't we so we had um yeah so we had the Villa Badano, which is the Tocca Friulano um, Lisson Classico, which is a DOCG for Tocca Friulano in that area. And we also had um, an old vine, Horoso, um, which is, comes through as an IGT, the Refosco de Fedis. So those were like the three local wines. Um, and then we had the um, uh, the Alois Lageda, um, oh, yeah. old vine, sort of Bordeaux-ish blend, Carmenere, mm. Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, Petit, Petit Verdot. And planted some of those vines were planted a hundred, over 130 years ago. We had the um, Serpico, which is the um, Alianico from Fiori de San Gregorio, 2013, planted 150 years ago. And then we had, um, yes, the Toroldigo Elisabetta Foradores wine from the um, 
from the Dolomites. I mean, that was actually 40 plus years old. So if you like, that's at the younger end of old wines. Um, so is there a flavour that you can taste from an old wine wine? It's not a flavour. Um, is it that all old wine wines have a lot of concentration? I sometimes see that written. And actually, I don't think it's true because concentration is actually quite easy to achieve in wine. Um, I think that what you get from tasting um, in, and in an old vine wine, I would call it a kind of vitality. They they have a kind of a crackling energy. They're not necessarily all concentrated, but they are all intense. They have a kind of detail of of um, a kind of texture, of precision, and I think that, and also of um, and and length. But uh, assuming they've been well made, of course. But again, it's a nexus effect in that the people who are bothered <laughs> to make wines from these vineyards are really bothered. So there, yeah, it's the muse effect again. It's that it. The fact that these vineyards have been there for so long, that they are part of the culture and agriculture, the agricultural heritage is, I think, is is kind of being let quite late into the cultural value party, but it is now here. And I think that they, the way that informs the intent of winemakers is absolutely part of the quality that's expressed achieved in wine i think we it's i know we're talking about old vines but i think with wine you have to always bear in mind the intent of the maker and all of these wines i'd say not only did they have a lot of intensity great balance and kind of i know this sounds really cheesy but i think of it as like an inner light but you know you know when you taste a wine and the hair stand up on the back of your neck and it's just so alive you know it has a soul. It. it has. It's like it. It's it's like a living character, you know. And and I know this sounds really cheesy, and, and you know, people might think, "Oh, she's you know a real sued." But honestly, you speak to anyone who you know is, is into wine, and of course, we are conditioned by the story and the context of of a wine. We know that. We know that that happens in everything. You know that you are cued to respond in a certain way when you have the context of any kind of aesthetic offer in front of you. But um, I think also it's this intersection. It's the intersection of place, people, inventiveness. So, you know, the intersection of Tokai, Briulano, um, actually that it was called Tokai because it remind, probably reminded the first um, producers of the aroma, the aroma of um, of Tokai, <laughs> you know, the and, and and what a particular and intense wine that is, so aromatic, but yet and kind of teetering, but yet so salty and and mineral. You know, um, when you think of the um, the Zani or a Fosco de Fedes, I mean, so bright and crunchy, and yet you know, a high tone, but yet kind of serious, floral. I mean, the most incredible aroma with this um, with this kind of loose weave um, 
almost like mesh texture, you know. I mean, that's such a such a particular wine. I'd hate to be given that blind. I don't know what I would where I would put it, you know. And then the um, the Alois Lageda, you know, that had this real kind of um, well, really sort of high um, shimmering kind of energy that really was so particular for that for that blend you know it's almost like a classic bordeaux blend but with um carmen air um the fjordi you know the um alianico which is often seen as being such a beast but actually the really kind of almost borderless power of that wine you know it was like it just you know you just kind of vaporized into your body you know these oh, and then a, that that's like the ballet dancer wearing dr Marsh yeah. just just yes. incredible yeah. yeah exactly yeah um or it reminded me but have you seen that the, the the men dancing in heels it slightly reminded me of that <laughs> anyway yeah. um and Reverse. then um, but you know all of these wines yeah <laughs> and um well the foradori we've already spoken about the um the um the, the real kind of dolomite energy coming through that wine. And so it's not that, oh, come on then, it's an old vine, how do you taste it? It's how this interacts with all the other aspects of making a wine exist that give it this extra beautiful quality and it's like the quality in any kind of aesthetic creation it it doesn't come from just one thing it's a kind and it's a kind it is a kind of magic if i can quote queen basically gives these wines when they are good something really particular and unique and and that's really worth saving and there will be great old vine vineyards out there who which are not necessarily given voice in a particular wine at the moment. And and because of that, it means that their value cannot be expressed. And so it's hard to justify keeping them going. But I mean, basically, the way I think about all of this is there's a huge trend at the moment for alcohol production as an industry to be held to greater scrutiny. You know, the way for wine to go has to be high quality, expressive, creative products that bring prosperity um, and pride to their com- the places where they're made um, and where it's all about quality rather than quantity because that that's just the way the alcohol industry has to go. Mm, and it's a kind of magic. In my view. <laughs> Place to it's leave. a kind of uh, magic. Yeah, without the singing, maybe. Uh, but uh, yeah, Sorry. yeah, cut that out. It's uh, your your passion uh, for those uh, wines uh, came through in that masterclass and, and came through uh, just then. As I say, it's always a bit more difficult to do tasting as the spoken word, but uh, it, it really did um, uh, convey uh, the the special nature of those old vine wines. Um, congratulations on the work that's been achieved already in less than two years. Um, looking forward to um, the next moves uh, for the Old Vine um, Conference and your um, aspiration to have a loose-knit net, which I, I think is a, a fantastic turn of phrase. And um, thank you, as ever, for your uh, passion, enthusiasm and for your wonderful communication, uh, Sarah Abbott. Thank you. Thank you, David. See you soon. Thanks. See you soon. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. 
You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Well, time to celebrate some medal-winning Old Vine wines. Uh, and let's start off with a, a producer, Le Bortoli, in the Prosecco Hills that was announced as the first ever winner of the Old Vine Trophy. And they also won a, a handful of medals um, at the IWSC in uh, 2022, including this gold. Uh, this is La Le Bortoli Supreme Dry 2021 from uh, Valdobbiadene, Prosecco Superiore, uh, judged on location uh, by panel led by Sarah, uh, including me, uh, Matteo Montoni, Master Sommelier, Andrew Johnson and Salvatore Castano. And here's the tasting note for that gold medal winner. Uh, this is rich yet well-balanced by great freshness. Creamy bubbles support the yellow apple and pithy grapefruit fruits. This shows great depth and complexity, great length, great example. Lots of use of the word great for uh, Le Bortoli. Well done to them. Uh, here's a beautiful wine from South Africa, as we heard earlier, a pioneer for old vines. Quest Old Vine Chenin Blanc 2021 won a gold medal with a whopping 97 points. Uh, judged on location by a team of international judges working with local specialists, led by Alistair Cooper, MW. Uh, here's the tasting note. Typical characteristics of baked lemon, melon zest, citrus, oats and honey, combining with rich oak, expressing a richly fruited and textured creamy complexity. On the palate shines the creamed pear, citrus fruit, uh, lees integration, crisp acidity and stone fruited finish. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be on that judging visit to South Africa and I was on the panel for this particular wine, along with uh, Christine uh, Rudman, uh, Bellingham Bernard Series Old Vine Chenin Blanc 2021, uh, was a silver medal winner with 92 points. Here's the tasting note. A ripe nose with flavours of rosher pear, stone fruit and pronounced lime. The palate is well focused with fleshy apple texture and fresh golden apple on the finish. To Argentina next, Luca. Old Vine Malbec 2020 from the Uco Valley in uh, Mendoza. It won a strong silver, 94 points for this, just one shy of a gold. Here's the panel's tasting note. Wonderfully pronounced aromas of violets, dark plums, black pepper spice with an elegant purity that continues to the palate with elevated fine grained tannins, giving structure and bitter black cherries and dark chocolate notes adding to the complexity. Impressive, they say. And to California, finally, some great work going on there uh, on Old Vines too. Grigich Hills Estate, Old Vine Cabernet Sauvignon 2018 from Yountville in the Napa Valley, won a silver medal, 91 points. The panel described it this way, intriguing, intense and complex, dark fruit and cedar aromas, concentrated, wonderful, dusky plum and black cherry with spice and hints of mint velvety tannins to the finish and that's our finish uh, that's it for this edition of the drinking hour my thanks to the wonderful sarah abbott mw and also uh, domenico veronese and claudio and nicolo uh, zani um, you can go to the old vines conference website i think it's oldvines.org 
uh, to find out more about the campaign. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter, Food FM Radio, or me. I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. But for this week, that's it. Thanks for your company. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.